0: This morning's reading is taken from Matthew chapter 2 verses 13 through 18. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, "Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him." And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt. then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah a voice was heard in ramah weeping and loud lamentation rachel weeping for her children she refused to be comforted because they are no more
1: if you're with us last week you'll you'll know what we're trying to do this advent season is to look at uh, simple cultural traditions that we have that we celebrate each year uh, during the Christmas season and look at them in light of the gospel because often they are shadows or echoes of what the gospel is. Uh, what you may not know is that we're not the only church doing that. Uh, there is another church uh, in Hanover, Pennsylvania, a sister church of ours, uh, who is also preaching through the exact uh, same sermon series as we are. Their pastor is uh, a really good friend of mine. Uh, he is the the father of Hannah Dareth who comes to to our uh, church uh, and next week, we're going to do a pastor swap. So what that means is I'm going to be preaching up in Pennsylvania, and Drew's going to come down and preach with you all, and you will be the better off for it because Drew is a wonderful person. Uh, so look forward to, to having Drew uh, with us next week. Uh, let's pray. Father, we just thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you for uh, the Christmas story, uh, the story of uh, the advent, the coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Father, in many ways, we are in between two different advents. We're in between the the first coming of Jesus, and we look forward to the second coming of Jesus. Right now, we get a taste of that kingdom uh, that he has brought, but we look forward uh, to a day when that kingdom will come in its fullness. Father, we pray that as we uh, approach your word this morning, as we read it, as we meditate on it, uh, that your spirit would bring those words alive that we would be able to not only see the truth, uh, to be the reminder of the gospel, but to have our lives changed by that message, by that powerful message of the gospel, because it, ve- it, it bears the very power of God itself. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, it was a sad week uh, in the news, as it is many weeks if you watch the news from time to time. But we all sadly watched the news this week and saw yet another mass shooting, this time uh, in the city of San Bernardino in California. By now, it seems like just one other shooting in a long line of shootings that seem to be happening week after week in our country and in our culture. And the temptation uh, at this point is to just become numb to the things that we watch on the news that happen day in and day out. I don't know if you saw this, but the New York Daily News got some attention for uh, its front page on Thursday in response to uh, the shootings that happened in California. On the front page of their paper, they had tweets from uh, several different politicians, Lindsey Graham and... And Rand Paul and Paul Ryan and all of those tweets were uh, them offering their prayers for uh, the victims of those who were who lost their lives in California this week. But in the very middle of that cover, in the very middle with all the tweets surrounding it in big letters were these words, God isn't fixing this. It gets to a a really basic question that many, uh, both inside and outside of the faith, really wrestle with. And that is, if God is there, if he does exist, why does he allow things like this to happen? If God is there, then why doesn't he do this? Why doesn't he fix the problems that exist in our world? Where is God in the face of tragedy that seems so random and so senseless. I also think that we we react differently to tragedies like this during the Christmas season. I remember uh, a few years back when uh, the tsunami hit in Indonesia and killed thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people. And I remember that the news uh, about that tsunami and its destruction uh, really came out on Christmas Day. So in one sense, we're all sitting around enjoying families, we're enjoying the culmination of the Advent season, we're celebrating uh, with one another uh, the Christmas season, and yet at the same time, we're seeing images of thousands upon thousands of people Losing their lives in another senseless tragedy. We struggled to get our minds around it. And maybe it's the nostalgia. Maybe it's the nostalgia that, that builds up in our hearts and minds during the Christmas season. We see chestnuts roasting by an open fire. We, we uh, see people singing carols uh, in the midst of a snowy evening. We think of holiday parties that are full of singing and joy. Maybe it's the, the nostalgia that captures us. But but we all know to be true is that often life doesn't play out the way nostalgic feelings want it to often life and reality is very different. During the holiday season, sometimes we're exposed to family dynamics that we would rather avoid for the rest of the year. Sometimes people suffer with loneliness during the holidays when they look at TV movies or Hallmark specials and they see their lives don't match the perfect picture of what a Christmas family really looks like. Many suffer through the loss of a loved one uh, throughout the holiday season, or, or the feelings of loss become much more acute during the holiday season. Our nostalgic images are often very different than the reality that we deal with day in and day out. I also think that we think nostalgically about the birth of Jesus, when we think about the birth of Jesus, we think of scenes that look just like this, when the reality is the, the, the nativity was probably much more different. It was probably an instance of what seemed to Mary and Joseph to be chaos. They were surrounded in scandal. They were surrounded in all sorts of uncertainty. It was far from nostalgic. In fact, as we read this morning, the birth of Jesus had its own occasion of senseless brutality and senseless violence. If you were with us last week, you were introduced to a character whose name was King Herod. And King Herod was a puppet king. He was a king that was appointed to rule over the Jewish people uh, by those that actually ruled the entire land, the Romans, in Jesus' time. But Herod himself was was actually a very hated king, and he was hated for two reasons. He was hated because he was a foreigner. The Jews resented the fact that the person that was appointed to reign over them, to govern over them, wasn't even one of their own. He was a foreigner, so they hated him because of it. But they also hated him because he was just an absolutely awful person, and I say that in the most gracious way. He was an awful character. He was always in fear that his throne would be taken from him, so he protected it with as much brutality and violence that he could muster up. The story tells us that when he came to power, he brutally exterminated most of the Jewish nobility and the priesthood because he was fearful that they would threaten his power. That same fear drove him to kill two of his own children and the mother of those children as well. He was a frenzied and senseless tyrant who ruled for close to 30 years in the ancient world. Our passage begins this morning telling us that Joseph uh, received a very powerful dream from God, another dream, a different one from the one that he received before. At this point, many people believe that Jesus was probably about six months old. And when Joseph receives this dream, he's told that he has to flee to Egypt because he is in danger from this senseless tyrant named Herod. And of course, Joseph obeys this dream as well. And Mary and Joseph immediately, probably that night, depart for Egypt. One can only imagine how difficult this must have been for Mary and Joseph. My wife and I just had a baby. We don't even want to take our baby to a restaurant, let alone having to flee to an entirely different country. Not only was this pregnancy and birth already wrapped in scandal, not only were these probably poor and destitute teenagers who now had to raise this child. But now God is telling them that they have to uproot themselves from their family, from their relationship network, from everything that they've ever known, and flee to Egypt where they won't know ev- anyone and where they will have to live in a foreign land. And many people believe that they ended up living in Egypt for close to seven years. They would suffer through this. Why? Because Herod, because Herod, having heard of a new baby king, did what he always did. He resorted to extreme violence in order to protect his throne. And our passage tells us that he ordered that all of the children of the city and the surrounding region around it would be ripped from their parents and would be killed from the spot, on the spot. You can only imagine walking The streets of Bethlehem and hearing mothers and fathers, brothers and sisters, uh, grandparents uh, crying over the sudden loss of children that had just been ripped apart from them, suffering through the brutal loss of a child. The church for centuries have, have called this the Day of Holy Innocence. And uh, throughout church history, the numbers of how many children were, were were killed have probably been inflated At one point, church historians uh, felt that close to one hundred and forty thousand children were killed in this instance. But as you look at at probably how big the city of Bethlehem was and the region around it, it was probably closer to around twenty children that were ripped from their parents and killed in this moment, that were killed in this senseless tragedy. Many have regarded uh, these children to be uh, the first martyrs of Jesus or those that were the first ones to be killed in the name of Christianity or in the name of of Jesus. Uh, Either way, whether it's many children or just a few children, It was a senseless tragedy. It was a messy story that doesn't fit with the nostalgic pictures that we have of the nativity. Uh, J.R.R. Tolkien was a famous author, uh, wrote The Lord of the Rings, and uh, was also a, a professor of English and literature. And there was one thing that he always warned. He always warned about cleaning up messy stories. Because if you clean up messy stories, you end up ruining the story in the process. Well, as we read this story, we come to terms with the fact that this is a messy story. It's a story of extreme suffering that doesn't offer us a whole lot of answers. But what is true of this story is also very true of life itself. And this morning, what I'd like to do is just look at three uh, quick things, three quick things that the scriptures and the gospel tell us about the messiness of lives, about the reality of suffering that life brings to us. The first thing we see is that suffering is normative in our world. Suffering is normative or normal to existence in our world. Eugene Peterson said this, he said, Our faith develops out of the most difficult aspects of our existence, not the easiest ones. If I asked you to sit here this morning and grab a pen and write in your bulletin uh, the three biggest struggles that you've had in your life, it might take you a long time to write it, it might take you a short time to write it, But in the end, I believe that you would probably look at that list, whatever list you generated, you'd look at that list and say, those were the hardest things in my life that I've ever had to struggle through, but they shaped and made me into the person I am am today. But even the knowledge of that, even the knowledge of the fact that suffering shapes us doesn't make it any easier when we go through it. Suffering absolutely shapes us. It gives us the, the temptation to become calloused about life. But if we allow it, suffering will shape us into the people that God wants us to be. There was a, a group of people in church history called the ascetics. And they, they understood this, uh, this idea that, that suffering shapes us as people. So what they did is in response, they would actually go and seek after suffering. They would go and long hunger strikes. They would abstain from food and sex and all the the pleasures of life. Some went even as far as, as sitting on a pole for 30 or 40 days at the time. So they would intentionally suffer and grow as people. All this was an attempt in them to find suffering and get close to God in the process. But all of us know that we don't actually have to go out and find suffering. Often suffering finds us on its own. Life in a world that is fallen, in a world that is cast into sin, is full of moments and it is full of seasons of suffering. I think we have to be cognizant, especially in our culture nowadays, of the opposite error. We have to be aware of the extreme of hedonism, and hedonism is is something that's prevalent in our culture. It's, it's the attempt to maximize all the pleasure that this life has to offer and reduce any pain that is possible. Anything that offers struggle or pain or difficulty, we avoid at all costs, and instead we only and ever pursue pleasure and try to maximize that as much as possible. But in the process, we avoid, the shaping effect that suffering can have upon us. But either way, at either extreme, suffering is normative in our world. We all suffer. We all watch suffering every night on the news. It is a reality of the world that we live in. But what makes suffering so hard is really what our second point is, and that is that God rarely, provides answers for us within our suffering. God rarely provides answers within our suffering. This week, I'm uh, here at the university. I'm, I'm doing l- uh, a lecture on a, a book uh, called "The Grief, A Grief Observed, which was written by uh, C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis, if you don't know, is, is kind of a giant in the faith. Um, uh, he wrote many books that were advocating Christianity in uh, post-World War II Europe and uh, has been a- at the forefront of Christian thought for a long time. But as you read C.S. Lewis's works, uh, A Grief Observed, which is one of the last things that he wrote, uh, raises eyebrows. And that's because of the content of what it says. You see, A Grief Observed is a diary that Lewis kept right after his wife passed away. And in that diary, you, you read instances of him screaming at God, or raging at God, or being angry at God, wondering why God is so silent in the middle of his suffering. What he does is he's, he's echoing what many psalmists wrote. Listen to this in Psalm 44, where the psalmist writes these words to God. He says, awake, why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and our oppression? A few weeks ago, I had a, a student uh, turn in a reflection paper uh, to me, uh, that talked about a little bit of his spiritual journey. And he said that in his, in his reflection paper that he'd always been a person of faith. He is a person of faith today. Uh, he was a person of faith uh, growing up. But he said for as long as he's been within the faith, he's struggled with something. And the thing he struggled with was the reality that when his little brother was two, he suddenly passed away. And what this student wrote in his reflection paper is that for 20 years, this is 20 years ago, he said for 20 years, even though it hasn't uh, subverted his faith, it has been this thing that has existed within his faith that seems so unanswered. It has been a gnawing issue. It has been something that he has wrestled with. He hasn't walked away from his faith because of it, but it's been an unreconcilable tension in his heart for as long as he has been in the faith. And in some ways, what he highlights is what the very nature of faith is all about. It's being confronted with unanswered questions. It's being confronted with unreconcilable tensions and yet still holding on to the faith. Faith is like this because God rarely provides answers for us within our suffering. But what that doesn't mean is that he leaves us alone within our suffering. He may not provide us with the answers. But what God does do is God does promise us his presence. Listen to this verse from Matthew. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. See, what Advent does is it reminds us that we serve and worship a God who is radically with us. He is a God who was acquainted with our sufferings. He's familiar with what we have gone through. He knew what it was like to be hungry, to be poor, to struggle with relationships. He knew what it was like to, to lose a close friend. We, uh, we remember the passage where he stood before Lazarus' tomb and wept. He understood what it was like to struggle through life. But he isn't just acquainted or familiar with our sufferings, but he was one who suffered himself. As you continue to read the Gospels, you you read throughout Christ's life, you read all the way towards the end of his life where you read about how He was betrayed by his friend who was closest to him. His life was was sold for pieces of silver. He was arrested, he was beaten, he was mocked, he was spit upon, and he was crucified on a cross, the innocent one being given the punishment of a common criminal. The gospel tells us he suffered at that moment the wrath and the rejection of God that you and I deserved because of our sin. And he did all of this willingly. He did it so that you and I could be assured of his continual presence in our lives so that we could experience life and forgiveness and reconciliation with God the Father. 2 Corinthians 5, for our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Uh, a couple years back, um, uh, it's been a several years now, uh, I was able to uh, attend um, a forum at Johns Hopkins University that actually Justin and Natalie Uh, helped to plan uh, a couple of years ago, and it was an open forum where uh, a a Christian apologist, a leading uh, Christian apologist, was invited to come and to lecture on the nature of faith. Some of you uh, were there with me at that point, and uh, his topic was on uh, something along the lines of how could a good God uh, allow suffering in, uh, in a world that we live in. And there were thousands of people there. there were uh, standing room only people in satellite locations uh, watching this whole thing and uh, the apologist got up and, and he lectured for uh, a, about an hour and a half on the very topic and gave very reasoned, wonderful arguments, all these kind of uh, intellectual uh, avenues to travel in to help us get our minds around why a good God would allow suffering. It was a, a wonderful time. And, and at the end of uh, the hour and a half of, of lecturing, he opened it up to uh, question and answers and uh, brought a, a team of apologists kind of up on the stage in order to help him uh, answer these questions. And and uh, people lined up at a microphone very similar to this and asked him several questions. And I'll never forget uh, what one woman did. She actually uh, walked, got up out of her seat, and she, she literally limped up to the microphone. And when it was her turn to ask a question, uh, she said this. She said, Years ago, I prayed that God would show himself to be more real in my life, that he would make his presence more real in my life. And she said, ever since then, I've been visited with nothing but tragedy. She went through a laundry list of all things that have happened to her, health concerns, passing away of people close to her, all these things, all these tragedies that she had suffered ever since she asked God to feel more his presence. And at the very end, she looks at the apologist. She may have even put her finger out, at least I'm remembering it that way. She may have even put her finger out and she said, I want you to explain to me why that happened. You could have heard a pin drop in the room at this point when she asked this question. And one of the apologists stood up and gave the only answer that he really could. He said, I don't know. But he said, what I do know is that we serve and worship a Savior who wept at the grave of his friends. And he weeps alongside of you. You see, friends, we serve a God who is is and was acquainted with our suffering. We serve a God who suffered himself on the cross on our behalf. We serve a God named Emmanuel, a God who is with us. Let's pray.